Uh, we had a Good Friday service on Friday where we walked through uh, several um, episodes in the Gospel of John. Uh, we looked at, uh, uh, let's see, uh, Judas's betrayal um, in... Uh, John chapter 13. We looked at Peter's denial in John chapter 18. We looked at uh, Jesus's trial and crucifixion in John chapter 19. And so that kind of lands us uh, in the, the resurrection in John chapter 20. We left off the very end of John 19. Jesus's body uh, is buried uh, in a tomb, right? A corpse, uh, a corpse in a, a cold stone slab of a tomb, and that's kind of where, um, that's, that's uh, essentially what the people that we're going to see in our story this morning have been sitting in and experiencing for the last 36 hours, was Jesus, this man that they've committed their life to, Jesus, this man that they um, are, uh, that, they, that they thought, you know, is going to save the world, right? They, 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 you know, they had no idea that he was going to die. This man was killed in front of their very eyes. And their, their lives are just, you know, turned upside down. And they've been kind of in that headspace for, you know, a day and a half, essentially, for, for three days when you kind of count the, the fractions of either day. So the people that we're going to see in our story, when, when we first see them, are going to be uh, in distress and kind of uh, in despair. When they come across the, the empty tomb, when they see that Jesus was resurrected and and so we're going to kind of read how they experienced it, right? I don't think that I am uh, exaggerating or, or overstating uh, when I say that, you know, this text describes the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of the entire universe, right? Like the, the, the resurrection of Jesus, the, the death of the Son of God, that then gives way to the, the resurrection of the Son of God in victory and power over Satan and sin and death. And then what that means for us as the people of God, right? That, that we can be saved from our sin and saved from an eternity of, of wrath and, and death and hell. And we can be saved and, and reconciled to God for all of eternity. This is the, the most important thing that has ever happened in the entire universe. And so I want to take some time this morning reading it and considering it and thinking about it and considering why the resurrection is so important and why the resurrection is so central to the Christian worldview and why the resurrection matters uh, to, to us, what the implications of the resurrection are for us as, as Christians to, today. So um, let's, let's read through John 20, verses 1 through 18, and then we will uh, take a few minutes and just unpack it and consider what it means and consider, um, you know, how, how we can apply it in our lives as believers. It says, Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One, um, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. 
Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who, whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if, they have, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced these things to the disciples and said, I have seen the Lord. And he has said these things to her. Lord Jesus, we thank you that, that uh, you were raised from the dead. We thank you that you are alive right now, that you are here with us, listening as we uh, worship you in song, listening as we worship you through the, the preaching and the hearing of your word. Lord, we thank you that we serve a Savior who is resurrected, who has overcome death, and who gives new life and resurrection power to us, to his people. And so we pray that you would meet us here, that you would speak to us. We pray that you would encourage our hearts. We pray that you would help us to see you and uh, savor you and love you and walk with you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so like I mentioned, uh, end of John 20, Jesus, body, buried, dead in a cold, dark stone tomb, kind of hewed out of the, the side of a, of a mountain in the, in the midst of a, of a garden. So on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away. So, so the, the burial process uh, was kind of uh, stopped abruptly on Friday afternoon, evening, because the Sabbath was approaching. So uh, Sabbath uh, in uh, first century Israel uh, ran from fr- you know, Friday sundown, Friday evening, th- through all day Saturday. So, so as Jesus is on the cross, uh, you know, and the afternoon gets later and later, and it gets closer to, to dusk, uh, the, the concern was this uh, can't go into the evening, too late into the evening, lest we not be able to bury Jesus' body. Uh, you know, work of any kind was forbidden on the Sabbath, uh, including um, carrying a, a dead body to a, to a grave or anointing said dead body with, with uh, spices and oils, as was, was typical. And so someone as uh, esteemed by his friends as Jesus, would they certainly would have wanted to give him this comprehensive uh, burial, and yet they, did, they were getting squeezed. They didn't have enough time to, to do it. And so uh, they basically did this rush job. They kind of said, let's, let's, let's do what we can, anoint him with what we can, wrap him in linens, put him in the, this tomb here that's, that's kind of close and convenient, and then we'll come back and finish the job on, you know, Sunday morning after the Sabbath has come and, and gone. So Mary Magdalene uh, comes there first thing in the morning. Skeptics might say, oh, maybe she went to the wrong tomb. Um, the Gospel of Mark makes it very clear that she was there when he was buried, knew exactly uh, where the tomb uh, was. And so Mary goes to the tomb, sees that the stone has been removed, and then just assumes that uh, someone has stolen Jesus' body. Uh, grave robbers were a thing um, then, I, I guess more so than, than today. And so it wasn't uncommon, especially if someone was buried with anything that might be considered valuable, that someone was going to come try and kind of, uh, you know, open the tomb up and, and take, either desecrate something or take anything that, that was of value. So, that, so Mary naturally assumes that that's what has happened here. So verse 2, she runs to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, to tell them about it. The one whom Jesus loved... I mean, we could just say in passing real quickly that that's just John and move on, um, but it might be worth just a quick sidebar, right? Because, uh, wh- yeah, who is it? And, and if it's whoever it is, why do they, 
Why are they refer? Why are they being referred to in this way, like this? And so, um, just kind of for some some you know trivia for you, um, the in the next chapter in John chapter twenty one, um, Peter is walking with uh, the resurrected Christ. Um, John chapter twenty one verse twenty. It says Peter turned around and following behind him in Jesus, he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved walking behind them. So. Uh, if we want to start to kind of piece together clues of who this disciple is that Jesus loved, um, that, that's kind of, yeah, point one is that uh, John, well, all through the Gospel of John, we see the disciple of, that Jesus loved hanging out with Peter. They're buddies. They're close. They're friends. And so we can kind of start to paint, paint the picture. Whoever this disciple is, he's close with Peter. He's, he's a close friend of and good, he's hanging out frequently with Peter. Next, he is following immediately behind Jesus and Peter in John chapter 21. And then a couple of verses later, it says about him, it says, This disciple whom Jesus loved is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. He's the one who has written these things. So the disciple that Jesus loved... The one who was following behind Jesus in John 21 is the one who wrote the gospel that we're reading. So, if the gospel was written by John, which is kind of the next thing, you know, the, 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 the reason why we attribute this gospel to John is because we attribute it to the disciple that Jesus loved, and, we, and the reason why we assume that the, the, the disciple that Jesus loved is John is because... Uh, so yeah, one, one thing we know for sure is whoever wrote the gospel is the disciple that Jesus loved. Whoever the disciple that Jesus loved is the one who wrote the gospel. Now, we know that he's a friend of Peter's, and we know from the synoptic gospel, from all of the gospels really, that there's three disciples that are mentioned uh, together a lot. They kind of form the inner three, this like close, uh, you know, inner, you know, executive committee, as it were, of disciples, Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers, and, and so Peter and James and John were the, the, were close together. They, they together were friends. They were closer to Jesus than any of the other 12 disciples, and they themselves were very close with one another. So it's very likely that that kind of reality of Peter and James and John, plus a bunch of other kind of really in the weeds stuff that we're not gonna, uh, I'm not gonna bore you with, kind of makes us very confident that the disciple that Jesus loved is either James or John. Now, uh, we also know that James was dead, was dead by the time this gospel was written because of Acts chapter 12 makes that very clear. So uh, we're, we're almost 100% confident. I mean, it would be an incredible, you know, I mean, we, we'd be incredibly surprised and, you know, all of the uh, attestation from all of church history would be like, whoops, we got that, you know, made a, made a big, big error there. The disciple that Jesus loved is John. John is writing, referring to himself, which, yeah, which also kind of raises the question, like, why would someone not just say, why wouldn't they say I, right? Like, uh, you know, Mary ran to Simon Peter and myself uh, and, and, and told us this. And I don't know, there, you know, there's different scholars have kind of, you know, had different theories on this. Um, it's pretty clear that he's not implying that Jesus didn't love the other disciples, because he did. And, and John says as much in several places uh, in, in the New Testament. So, so Jesus loved all of the disciples. It wasn't that he only loved John. Jesus loved all of his people. It's not that he only loves John and not the rest of his, his people. So um, the, my best guess as to why John doesn't just refer to himself with his own name or with a first-person pronoun, why he uses this, the disciple that Jesus loved is because... Um, that, he understands that to be the most important thing about himself. Like the, that to be the most descriptive, the, the thing that he wants to endure in his writings, right? Like, like the, my most, the most important, the most fundamental part of my identity is not my name. It's not my father's name. It's not where I'm from. It's the most important fundamental thing about my identity is the fact that Jesus loves me. That's the defining characteristic of who I am and, and what, what I'm doing here and my part in this story. So he refers to himself. I am the disciple that Jesus loved. Like he can't get over the reality that Jesus actually loves, loves him. So Mary runs up to Simon Peter and to John and she says, uh, they have taken my Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. Now this is also an important detail. The, the detail that Mary Magdalene was the one who discovered the empty tomb and that she came and told it to the disciples. Might not be a, a big deal 
today. But the fact that the empty tomb was discovered by a woman is, actually says a great deal about the historicity of the Gospels and the historicity of the resurrection event itself. Today, in the, you know, we, for the most part, society today recognizes that men and women are equally trustworthy. Both can you know, tell the truth, both can lie, both can be mistaken, right? Apart from some you know, people who are sexist or foolish or something like that. Like most of society pretty much assumes that men, women, equally trustworthy, we can trust what they say. This was not the case in the first century. In the first century, it was a universally recognized truth uh, within Judaism as well, but, but it will far more so uh, in the, the Greco-Roman world, a universally recognized truth that, that uh, women just can't be trusted. They, they were seen as inferior to men. They were seen as lacking the capacity to be able to do and understand the things that men do and understand. And they were seen as lacking the moral compass to be able to speak and engage with uh, integrity. That's just how the culture in the first century understood women. And so, I mean, obviously that's wrong, and the Bible is very clear that that, is, that that is wrong, but that was the prevailing cultural belief at the time. And so, I mean, so much so that women were not allowed to testify in court and in legal proceedings because everyone just kind of assumed anything that they say, can't, they're either, they're, they're probably mistaken or they're probably lying, one of the, one of the two. And so, now here's why that, um, here's why that, that matters, and here's why that speaks to the historicity of the Gospels, right? When, when all four Gospels all together agree that it was uh, women who discovered the empty tomb, that is, that is not something that would have led credi- lent credibility to the Gospels and the Gospel writers in the first century. It would have done the opposite. It would have made them it would have made them less likely to be believed, less likely to be accepted. People would have been like, oh, well, that, you know, sure. Right? Sure, John, a woman found an empty tomb. Yeah, I know women who've said all kinds of crazy things. Like, that's, that, why would you even give any, why would you even put any stock in something that some woman told you? It's kind of how most people would, would uh, hear. But, so, so like, it, it probably wouldn't make its first century readers think more highly of it or, or assume that it's true because of a detail like that. But what we've, what we've learned as historians over the centuries is that when you look back on a historical document, I mean, it's even true, not even historical documents, just, just I mean, if you're like, you know, if you're mediating a conflict with your kids, right? Like, you know, chances are if, if, they, uh, if their story is a little too convenient, then it's probably, right? If the story, if they're, they're fighting and one kid says, he called me a name, he hit me, he took my candy, and I didn't do anything wrong. In fact, I, was, I gave him my candy. And, right? like, I, 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 was per, I was utterly perfect in this, in this scenario, and the, all the fault and the blame was on them. You're like, well, that's probably not entirely true. Right? Like, the, the, the more embarrassing an account is for the person giving it, then that's maybe a reason to think, okay, well, it's probably true. Like, they probably wouldn't make up a detail like that like, if they were going to make up a detail, they probably wouldn't make up that one. They'd make up a different one that is more, that casts them in a better light, or that makes their story more plausible and more believable. They probably wouldn't make up a detail that, that actually goes against their objective, which is to try to be believed and to be uh, ac- accepted. So that's kind of a historical, uh, you know, criteria that we use to look at historical documents and historical, uh, you know, narratives. It's like, is it too convenient or does it have some details that are embarrassing or maybe difficult to explain or that maybe that would have made it difficult to be received by its hearers? And if so, then chances are you're reading a document that's authentic or the likelihood of it being authentic is much greater than if, it, if those details were not, were not there. So the fact that all four Gospels say that, uh, that the empty tomb was discovered by a woman makes us think, yeah, probably happened. They probably wouldn't have made that up, and certainly they probably all four wouldn't have agreed on it unless that actually was a thing that happened, that there was an empty tomb and that women really did discover it and that, they, that those women came and told the disciples about it and then they came and, and saw it. So we've got some, we've, we're kind of 
as we read the, the Gospels, you kind of start to see a, a pretty compelling um, picture of the, the, the fact that Jesus really was raised from the dead, and the tomb really was empty, and it really was uh, discovered in this way. Verse 3. So, uh, Mary comes and tells him these things, and it says, So Peter went out with the other disciple, with John, and they were going toward the tomb. This is, this is funny. And then both of them were running together, but, the, uh, but John, me, I, right, I outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So he wants to make that clear. He's like very adamant. I'm younger, faster, more athletic, right? Like I'm, I'm more of a specimen than Peter is, just in case they, we needed, you know. It, this reminds me, there's a verse in uh, Numbers. It's in my note. Numbers 12, 3. It says, now Moses was a very humble man. Moses was more humble than anyone else on the face of the entire earth. And of course, Numbers was written by Moses. So he's like, he really wants you to know how humble he is and just how he's the most humble person there is in the whole world. John really wants you to know how fast of a runner he is and how he could beat Peter in a, a foot race. But uh, so John and Peter are running to the tomb because the, the assumption is Jesus' body has been stolen. So we need to get there. We need to look. We need to either see who it is who's trying to get away or we need to find clues so that we can figure out where it is. We need to go recover Jesus' body, beat up whoever took it, and you know, make, make this situation right. And so they run there. And then kinda, you can kind of see their characters on display a little bit too. Uh, John gets there first. And, uh, but he, he doesn't go in. He stops and he looks in the tomb. He sees the linen cloth lying there, but he does not go in, right? John's a little more contemplative, a little bit more like, take a beat. Like, I don't want to, you know, I'm gonna, I want to think this through and make the right decision, right? Uh, you know, don't, I, I don't need to, I don't need to do anything hastily. Peter, of course, gets there and just goes right into the tomb, right? Simon Peter came, finally goes right. And so that's Peter's MO is like, he's always... First to speak, first to act. You know, I think we should do this. We, we, you know, he's always the guy that's kind of rushing in, impulsive, impetuous, sometimes rash. And so Peter gets there and he rushes in. He sees the, linen, the same linen cloths that John saw. He sees those. And he also sees the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, that's not lying with the linen cloths, but lying somewhere else, folded up by itself in verse 7. Verse 8, the other disciples. So then John now who reached the tomb first, he also goes in, and John sees and believes. So something about maybe these, the linen cloths and maybe the way that they're lying there, or something about the, the face cloth that was lying and kind of folded up uh, over by itself, uh, prompts John to see and, and believe. Maybe he thought, um, you know, if this were uh, grave robbers, they probably would not have left those cloths lied, you know, laid in this way, folded up neatly in this way like that. They probably would have taken them, or I, I don't know. Something about what, what John sees causes him to see and believe. And yet, um, despite the, the fact that he sees and believes, he still does not understand the scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. So, so he believes that Jesus has risen from the dead, but he doesn't yet quite understand that this is something that he should have anticipated beforehand. He doesn't, doesn't understand that the Old Testament scriptures point forward to the reality that Jesus is inevitably going to rise from the dead and that, it, that he shouldn't be surprised. That's not something that's clicked into place yet. That's something that he's probably going to understand later, likely after Jesus explains it to him. On the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, Jesus explains how uh, the Old Testament scriptures point forward to him and to his death and his resurrection from the dead. And so presumably Jesus tells John something like that as well at some point. And that's probably when it clicks into place. That's when John not only sees and believes from verse 8, but he also understands that this was something that had to happen, that Jesus must rise from the dead in verse, uh, in verse 9. And then verse 10, the disciples go back to their, their homes. We've seen what we needed to see. We've confirmed the story of Mary Magdalene. Right? John uh, believes that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Peter doesn't say anything about what he believes at this point. Um, the Gospel of, let's see, uh, the Gospel of Luke says that Peter went away wondering to himself what had happened. So maybe, Pete, maybe, maybe they both arrive, they both see the inside of the tomb. John sees, believes, and goes home believing. And Peter's still like, I'm not sure. 
Not sure what happened. I'm not sure if this is uh, a grave robbery. I'm not sure if uh, something has something that we need to figure out and account for. But one way or another, you know, by the time we get to the book of Acts, both John and Peter, uh, you know, are uh, yeah believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead and are very uh, vocal in you know communicating communicating that. Verse eleven. But Mary, so John and Peter at this point have gone. Uh, gone home. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other at the, the feet. This is another uh, detail that a lot of skeptics will kind of point to, the angels uh, at the tomb uh, after the resurrection of Jesus. Matthew and Mark say that there's one. I think one says there's an angel. One says there's one angel. One says there's one man. Uh, Luke says there's two men. John says there's two angels. And so, yeah, it's like, what, what's, you know, was there one? Was there two? Were they angels? Were they men? What exactly is, is going on? I mean, angels versus men, I think it's pretty, you know, it's not, not a difficult, right, you know, I mean, angels that are appearing in the form of, of human beings, I think is probably the best, you know, description of what we're, what we're seeing and observing here. But one versus two, I mean, again, um, guys point to it and say, oh, see, these, the, the gospel writers can't agree. They contradict each other. Therefore, the Bible can't be uh, trusted. Probably a bit of an overstatement. Just because of the way language works, right? The way that, like, the way that we tend to communicate things and the way that we try to, the way that we emphasize the, the details that we're, like whenever you're describing something, you don't always, it's impossible to, to describe something and include every single detail of what you're describing because there's an infinite number of, or you can always zoom in further and get more granular in the details that you are, you know, considering. Like if you... Like if I were to say, if I were to, if you were to go up to someone and ask them, hey, do you, have a, do you have a pen that I can borrow? And they were to say, sure, no problem. And then they, they open their purse and give you a pen, but then you see like four other pens in their purse. Like you probably wouldn't be like, liar. Like, like you said you had a pen, but there you had five pens. And so you, I, you're like, you are... I want you to confess, and I want you to, you know, own up to the fact that you're right. Because that's like not what they were, they weren't saying that. They weren't, they weren't saying, it's not like they said, yeah, I have a, yes, I have a pen. If they said, if you said, do you have a pen I can borrow? And they're like, yes, I have one pen and only one pen. And no other pens except my one singular pen. And then they open, and then they have like five pens. You'd be like, all right, that was weird that you said that. And it was wrong. Like you were either mistaken or lying. That's right. But they're like, yeah, sure, I have a pen, no problem. Right, you wouldn't, like, because they, they're not speak, they're, they're, if you, like, parse their words exactly, they say, I have a pin, but really they have four. But, like, that, they weren't saying, they weren't speaking to the number of pins they had. They were speaking to the fact that, yes, you're welcome to borrow a pin from them. And so that's, like, when you look at Mark, at Matthew and Mark, uh, they don't seem to be speaking, you know, specifically and intentionally to the number of angels that there were at the tomb, they, they're speaking more about the, what the angels were doing, rolling the stone away and sitting on it, and you know, the things that they were, were, yeah, they're more interested in the things that the angels are saying and less the, in, in, interested in the number of angels that they're, plus if there's two angels, then there, there's one, like, if you have two angels, then you have one, like, you have one. Not, you know. So neither Mark nor neither Matthew or Mark say that there was one and only one angel at the tomb. They just say there was an angel, which is not untrue. It just happens that there's also another uh, angel. There could be more. There might maybe there were ten for all we know. And Luke and John just decided to only mention two. Either way, not really a contradiction. Certainly something that can be explained just by the way, by virtue of how language works and how people tell stories and things like that. So. Uh, Mary sees two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, the other at the feet, and they say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she says, uh, They have taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have laid him. Right? So John uh, sees the, 
linens and believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, Peter, we're not quite sure what he thinks. Uh, you know, he leaves kind of wondering what has happened. Mary, it's very clear that she still thinks that the tomb, that the grave had been robbed and that someone had taken Jesus' body. She's hoping to uh, recover it. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Right, the, 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 uh, this is not the only instance where the resurrected Lord appears to someone and they don't recognize who he is. Right? Uh, another account in Luke, they're going to like, be talking with Jesus and not know that it's him, and then they're, later they're going to say, didn't our hearts burn within us when we were talking with him? Like something was, we, we thought there was something weird about this, but we, you know, we know Jesus, we love Jesus, we're sitting here talking with this guy that we don't know is Jesus, but something about what he's saying is kind of making our hearts burn within us. So, so there's something about Jesus' appearance that is, there's some sort of discontinuity between Jesus in his natural body that he walked around on the earth with for 33 years and Jesus in his resurrection body after his, after his death and resurrection. There's continuity. There's, there's continuity between uh, Jesus before his death, Jesus after his resurrection. That's why the tomb is empty, right? Because, because the, the, the the continuous body from one to the other. There's continuity that people are able to touch him, touch his, his wounds and things like this. He's able to eat food. So there's a lot of things that are true of his pre-resurrection, right, his, his mortal body um, and his resurrection body. There's some co- continuity there. But there's also discontinuity, which is why, you know, he can walk through walls. There's, there's multiple uh, you know, instances in the Gospel of John uh, where they're in, inside a locked room and a locked door and Jesus kind of walks right through it. And so there's, some, there's something different, there's something better about Jesus' resurrection body than his uh, body that he had before he died on the cross. And in fact, you can see uh, a discussion of this in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 35 to 58 talks at length about Jesus' resurrection body, his glorified resurrection body, and the glorified resurrection body that, that we will experience one day when we are raised from the dead in the pattern of Jesus and his uh, resurrection. So, uh, Jesus says, yeah, so she sees him, doesn't recognize who he is. Uh, he says, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Then in verse 15, Mary, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Mary assumes that Jesus is a gardener, which is, you know, might just be a passing detail, but probably not. You know, I, I think what we have here is kind of a, an example of Mary maybe speaking a little better than she, than she knows. In fact, the song we sang, right, um, Jesus, or... Christ, the true and better Adam, right? Uh, you know, mentioned that Adam, let's see if I can find the lyrics to it. Um, Christ, the true, Christ, the true and better Adam, uh, the son of God, son of man, who when tempted in the garden, never yielded, never sinned. And so to, to understand maybe the, the significance of, of Mary calling Jesus the gardener, we kind of have to do just a quick Biblical theology is a sketch of gardens in the, the Bible. So, uh, Genesis, God creates the world. God creates a garden, the Garden of Eden. And God creates humanity and puts them in the Garden of Eden. And God gives humanity in the Garden of Eden a task, right? He tells Adam to work the garden, work it and keep it. Those are the two verbs that he uses. And then he gives them a specific mandate to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and everything. So, so your job, Adam, is to be a gardener. Your job is to be in the garden, work the garden, keep the garden, and then to take everything that is in the garden, all of the animals, right, and, and kind of like uh, fill the earth with the garden, as it were. The garden is where God dwells. And then outside of the garden, there is void. There, there's, there's chaos. There, there's, there's disorder. And so take the order and the beauty of the garden and fill the earth with the order and beauty and presence of God that is in the, the garden. So Adam, humanity, was, was called to be a gardener and was called to, uh, you know, kind of make the garden fill the earth. Now, 
uh, Adam fails in, in that role, right? Adam sins against God and he's removed from the garden. Adam kind of loses his gardening privileges, as it were. And he's, he's cast out of the garden. There's an angel guarding the, the, the entrance back into the garden so that Adam can't get back in. That's Genesis 1 through 3. Now, uh, fast forward to the tabernacle and the, the temple. Tabernacle in Exodus, temple in 1 Kings, uh, is kind of fashioned as a garden, interestingly enough. It's, uh, there's all kinds of garden imagery in the tabernacle and in the temple. There are pictures of angels embroidered uh, in the fabric of the tabernacle and pictures of angels uh, all around the temple, similar to the angel that was guarding the Garden of Eden. There are, uh, you know, trees and plants and, and uh, flowers and, and animals and fresh water and all kinds of uh, garden imagery kind of, uh, you know, in the temple, in and around the temple. The temple itself was on a mountain, so was the Garden of Eden. The temple itself faces east, so did the Garden of, of Eden. And so the temple was almost, it's almost like the biblical writers are trying to kind of get through The garden was the place where God dwelled. God dwells in the garden. His presence is there. There's beauty and glory and order there. And man was put in the garden to work it and keep it. And now the temple is the next, it's like the temple is reminiscent of the garden. The temple is the, is the, the garden was the prototypical temple. And the temple is the second generation, it's like a, a shadow of what the garden was. And the verbs that um, are used consistently for priests uh, in the Old Testament, their job in the temple, to work it and keep it. The, the priests were to work and keep the temple in the same way that Adam was to work and keep the garden. So you've got the, the, the Garden of Eden. Adam is the gardener that's in it. You've got the, the garden uh, temple, as it were, with the priests, gardeners that are, that are in it. You kind of fast forward uh, up to the, the life and death of, of Jesus. Um, you, uh, you know, Jesus, uh, when he's praying at the end of his life, he's in a garden, the garden of Gethsemane. So it's almost like Jesus is entering into the same garden where Adam failed and the same garden where the priests have uh, also failed to fulfill God's ultimate will and vision for humanity. Jesus enters into the garden. Adam, in, the, in his garden, God gave him a task specifically having to do with a tree, right? Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus, centuries later, is in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and God gives him a task having to do with a tree, right, to go to the cross and die for the sins of his people. And, and Jesus is equal, as much as Adam was tempted to eat from the tree, Jesus was also tempted to not die on the cross because of the pain and suffering that was endured in that, where Adam uh, was faithless and sinned against God uh, and disobeyed his command about the tree. Jesus was faithful and obeyed God and went to the cross and died on the tree for his people. So, so Jesus is being kind of, you know, fashioned as and kind of held up as, like we sang, the true and better Adam, the true and better, you know, royal priest of God, whose job is to be a gardener. In the book of Revelation, when you look at the the imagery and you kind of look at the description of uh, the the eternal state, um, you see it's, it, it looks a lot like a garden, right? It's, uh, you see a lot of fresh water and trees and animals and, and plants and all kinds of things. And so it's almost like the history is heading toward its ultimate fulfillment of kind of being, um, you know, being like it was in the Garden of Eden as it was created to be. Jesus is the true and better gardener, as it were, who, who kind of makes that happen, brings the glory of God and, and lets the people of God experience the glory of God in the garden of God's presence. So, uh, Mary says to him, uh, Mary supposes he's a gardener, which again, probably, you know, speaking better than she knows, right? Probably doesn't even recognize all of the ways in which that is true and fulfills these biblical typological themes. And she says, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And then verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. 
And now, right, when he calls her woman in verse 15, she supposes him to be, she doesn't know who he is, thinks he's a gardener. When he calls her Mary in verse 16, she recognizes who he is and says teacher, right? She recognizes that this is who, that this is, is Jesus. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, the thief and the robber, they come to steal and kill and destroy. But the shepherd comes to lead his sheep, to protect them and take care of them. The shepherd calls his own sheep by their name. And the sheep hear his voice. They don't follow the voice of a stranger. They'll flee from a stranger. But they will follow the voice of their shepherd because their shepherd calls them by name. And then he continues later in John 10. I, Jesus, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I call them by name. They know who I am and they follow me. It's possible to It's possible to know a lot about Jesus. It's possible to know a lot about the Bible, to have been in close proximity to Christianity for a really long time and not really know him. It's possible to be standing right in front of Jesus making eye contact with him and not realize, who, not appreciate the fullness of who Jesus is and what he has done for you, right? This is the, the nature of our fallen, sin-affected, you know, sin-marred uh, hearts and, and, and souls, right? We can, we can be standing right in front of Jesus and, and miss and, and not see or understand the beauty and the glory of who he is until he calls us by name until we hear the voice of Jesus calling us by name, calling us out of our former way of life and calling us into a new life with, with him. Before a, tr- before a person trusts in Jesus, they look a lot like Mary in verse 15 don't know who Jesus is, don't appreciate what Jesus has done, completely unaware of those spiritual realities. But when a person comes to Christ, when a person trusts in Jesus and places their faith in him, right, puts their soul into his hands and invites him to hold it and save them and keep them forever, it looks a lot like verse 16, where Jesus calls them by name, and that that being called by name by Jesus does something in their hearts. It, it softens their hearts. It melts their hearts. It, it causes their hearts to, to, you know, cast itself upon Jesus, their teacher, their, their savior. And then in verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to my brothers, or but go to my brothers, and and tell them, right? Uh, in other words, uh, don't don't worry, Mary. Like don't you don't have to hold on to me right now, as if this as if this little moment between you and me right now is about to like I'm not I'm not going to involuntarily just float up to heaven. You know, like it's, I'm, I haven't ascended yet. It's not something that has happened, and we've got some time. You, you, you don't have to, right? I'm going to stick around and see everyone, so you don't need to hold on to me uh, out of fear that you're not going to see me again. I'm going to be here, but instead, instead of holding on to me as if this moment is something that you need to, you know, grab hold of and make sure it doesn't slip through your fingers. Instead, what I want you to do is go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the to my father and your father, to my God and to your God, right? There, there's a, this is a time not for clutching me as if I were some jealously guarded, private, dream come true secret, but rather this is a time for joy and for sharing the good news with the rest of the people who, who love me. So you don't have to cling to me. Just go tell my other disciples that I'm raised from the dead 
and that I am in the process of ascending back to the Father, and I will uh, in, the, in the near future. Which is exactly what Mary does, right? Verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Our, our natural state before the Spirit of God opens our eyes and causes us to see who Jesus is. In our natural state, we're blinded to the glory of God, blinded to the sinfulness of our own sin, blinded to how desperately we need God, and blinded to the beauty and the sufficiency of Jesus to save us from our sin. That's the natural state of the human heart. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. I don't need anything from from anyone. I don't care about God, salvation, heaven, hell. I am totally fine with who I am and everything that I, that I have. But when Jesus comes to us, right, when Jesus confronts us and calls us by name and calls us, the blinders fall off. We start to see God for who he is, our sovereign creator that we owe everything to and to whom we are accountable. We start to see ourselves for who we really are, broken sinners who have rebelled against God and rejected him because we resented his having authority over us. We start to see Jesus for who he really is, God who became a man and entered into our world and lived the perfect life that we had failed to live to fulfill the righteous will of God and then died as a sacrifice for sin to satisfy the wrath of God and then was raised from the dead in victory over Satan and sin and death to give new life and, and resurrection power to his people, right? right? When, 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 um, when God calls us by name, when Jesus calls us by name, right, all of that, you know, all, all of the, the blindness that we were formerly experiencing melts away. We see Jesus for who he really is. And then we go and tell others about him. Right? We go and tell others, I've, I've seen the Lord. Here are the, the wonderful things that he has said to me. Here are all the wonderful things that he has done for me. Right? When a Christian uh, is confronted by and is called out, their, their name is called by Jesus. That's how they respond. They trust in Jesus, and then they go and they tell others about Jesus. Friends, Jesus died for you. Jesus was beaten and nailed to a cross and and hung on a cross and suffered under the wrath of God for hours on end. Jesus was treated as if he had committed every sin that every believer would ever sin, every sinful word, every sinful thought, every sinful deed, every bad thing that you have ever done, every good thing that you have ever failed to do, Jesus was punished by God as if he was guilty of those things. Despite the fact that he was not guilty, he was innocent. And then Jesus got up out of the grave. Jesus was raised from the the dead in victory over Satan and sin and death, right? He is risen, and thus his sacrifice for sin has been accepted by the, the Father, right? Death no longer has the last word. Jesus does. Death is no longer on top of the food chain, Jesus has defeated and unseated. I mean, literally in Revelation 20, it says that Jesus takes death in some weird personifications. And Jesus takes death and throws death itself into hell. Death is defeated by Jesus through the resurrection, right? The death and resurrection of Jesus represents the death of sin, the death of hell, the death of death itself. And as a result, if you trust in Jesus, the cup of God's wrath that was intended for you, that is deserved by you, has now been poured out completely and entirely on Jesus. There is no more wrath left 
for you. You can trust in Jesus and know unequivocally with full assurance that, that Jesus has saved you. He has forgiven your sin. He has invited you into a new life with him, eternal life with him in his presence. Jesus died on the cross for you. Jesus got up out of the grave for you. And because of that, you do not need to fear death. You can know that his sacrifice was accepted. You can know that his death was sufficient to save. And you can know that you will inherit eternal life with the people of God. The death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of the universe. And it has profound implications for us right now. And Jesus is calling each of us by name to live in view of his death and his resurrection. He's calling us to turn from our sin, to trust in him, and to follow him until we see him face to face. Jesus is risen, Jesus is alive. Pray together. Father, we thank you that Jesus is alive. We thank you that the gospel is not some fairy tale that someone made up. It's not some story about some religious leader who died and stayed dead. The gospel is good news. It's the good news that is true that Jesus died for us, that Jesus was raised from the grave, and that Jesus is alive right now. And so, Lord, we thank you and we trust in you. And we pray that you would help us to persevere in repentance and faith until we see you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.